Family and fellow soldiers, I'm the professor, and this is the moment of truth. Now, you might think of today's morning briefing as being some sort of early entry for the Friday crime report. But actually, it's something I want to sound off on, and I've been meaning to get around to this for the last week or so. As most of you are aware, late last month, there was a report out of Los Angeles about two Jewish men who had been shot. Each victim was shot outside of a different synagogue. Interestingly enough, the LAPD, showing how brilliant they are, initially said that there was no evidence to confirm that the shootings were motivated by hate. What that means is they didn't have a black suspect. But as the information continued to pile up, they eventually had to change their tune. Now, the police didn't catch the shooter until after they reviewed license plate reader records that placed the shooter's car in the area at the time that the shootings occurred. Kind of reminds you of Jesse Smollett, doesn't it? There's all kind of technology that the police has got in these cities to read license plates and be able to track vehicles. Think about that the next time you hear about some mysterious shooting that took place in a black enclave, you know, like some drive-by or another at a park, and the cops say, oh, we just can't figure out who did it. Now, when the shooter in this case was caught, he was identified as 28-year-old Jamie Tran. He had been homeless for a year and living out of his car. Tran carried out both of the shootings, specifically targeting Jewish people in Los Angeles. I'm sure that comes as a shock to the LAPD. The new mayor of LA, Karen Bass, gave her sincere condolences to the victims and to the Jewish community in LA as a whole, saying that anti-Semitism is intolerable. She also made sure to mention that she celebrated the first day of Hanukkah with Jewish Los Angelinos, just a few blocks from where these shootings occurred. The numerous statements that she released showing solidarity with the Jewish community is good. And it's also far more than she's ever said about the repeated attacks against black Los Angelinos who face violent attacks on a daily basis from not just private citizens, but also from public employees like the police. Now compare Mayor Bass's response to this incident where two people were shot, though fortunately not killed, so the way that Nikki Haley reacted after the Mother Emanuel Church massacre where nine black parishioners were murdered in their own church, including the pastor. Then Governor Nikki Haley refused to say anything at first, and it took a public outcry to finally force her to say something. She wanted to make a show out of how she could care less that nine black people have been killed by some white supremacist punk. She is a racist through and through, and now she's trying to get some half-brain presidential run underway. Black mayors bend over backwards to show that they care about everyone in their city. Nikki Haley, who is of East Indian descent, she went out of her way to show how much contempt she has for black people. Now, Jamie Tran has since been indicted for multiple hate crimes charges at the federal level, and I find it interesting that the feds were able to determine that it was a hate crime so quickly because in cases where black people are assaulted or even murdered, the feds always seem to need several weeks, if not months, to determine if they think that it qualifies as a hate crime. And most of the time, they tell us they don't think that it does. And on the rare occasions that they do, they try to hurry up and rush some quickie plea deal to the courts, one that doesn't include a hate crime charge. But that's not how they're handling this one, because the victims aren't black, and the perpetrator isn't black either. The laws in this country are color-coded, as is the white media coverage, or in this case, cover-up. Well, let me tell you just a few details about this case that the white media won't. Jamie Tran had been enrolled at UCLA. He was studying dentistry. In 2018, he was kicked out of UCLA's dental school. For what? I don't know. 
But he was only just getting started with his misbehavior. July 3rd, 2022, he was spotted on a bench near the engineering building at Cal State Long Beach campus. He told the police he was carrying a loaded weapon for protection. Amazingly, the police actually arrested him, unharmed of course, and charged him with felony possession of a loaded firearm on a school campus. But he wasn't through annoying his former classmates just yet. Between August and December of 2022, he repeatedly sent anti-Semitic texts and emails to a number of his former classmates. There was one in particular that he seemed to want to single out for special abuse. This guy got himself kicked out of dental school just four years earlier, and yet he's still obsessing about his former classmates. Oh, and uh, as for the gun charge, after he was arrested, he was released on bail. Now, he was supposed to be back in court late last month, but of course, we all know he carried out his rampage before that could happen. But there's one more aspect of all this that needs to be mentioned. The FBI already knew about this guy. He wasn't just known to the LAPD, he was known to the feds, too. The LAPD had received what's called a guardian lead from the FBI due to the hate-filled emails that Jamie Tran was sending all over the place. Now, what the LAPD was referring to is the FBI's Guardian Threat Tracking System, which documents potential terrorist threats and suspicious incidents, and then assigns them to be followed up on, and they also issue alerts about potential threats as well. The white media reports that there were at least two Guardian reports generated on Jamie Tran before he went on his rampage, but nothing was ever done about it. Brian Levin, director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at Cal State San Bernardino, asked, how is it possible that the feds knew about this guy and yet did nothing? How is it possible that this guy had a criminal trial pending for a gun charge and for making anti-Semitic threats, and yet he was still allowed to get a gun regardless? The FBI tried to explain away their inaction by claiming that the Guardian reports are of limited use because they often document actions that aren't criminal in and of themselves. Oh, so this is just a case of transactions not being deemed criminal? So having a gun charge isn't a crime anymore. Nice to know. All of this white splitting from the feds sounds real familiar to me. A racist gunman who has charges pending, the FBI knows about him, and yet they do absolutely nothing to stop him from getting a gun? I'm trying to remember, where do I recall hearing about a case just like this one? Because I know I heard of a case like that before. Oh yes, Dylan Roof. Before he committed the Mother Emanuel Church massacre, Dylan Roof had been arrested for and admitted to drug possession which should have disqualified him from being able to make a gun purchase. But he's got genetic immunity from the law, and as we all know, those gun laws, just like the drug laws, were written to catch black people. So despite having a drug rap, the FBI's so-called examiners, who were supposed to be doing the background checks on people, they made no effort to contact law enforcement regarding Dylan Wolf's arrest. And of course, even without a background check, the gun dealer still sold him a firearm anyway. So Jamie Tran wasn't the first criminal who the FBI did nothing to stop from obtaining a firearm, despite having all the information necessary to stop him, despite the fact that it was against the law for him to even be trying to get a gun. For some reason, when they're not chasing black people, the feds just can't seem to get anything done. These spree killers and even mass murders just seem to keep slipping the net. But the net seems more like a revolving door. 
And when you see something happen this consistently for this long, it's time to stop asking what's going wrong and to instead accept the fact that this is the system working exactly the way it was designed. All last year, this guy was giving all kinds of signs that he was getting ready to carry out some sort of mass shooting. Stalking former classmates, sending all kinds of threats, staking out a school gun in hand. But they let him out on bail because, of course, they did. And even when afterwards he began harassing and threatening Jewish classmates, nothing was done about it because he didn't fit the profile of who they really want to go after. This incident is yet another in an endless string of examples that proves why the lie of black anti-Semitism is so dangerous. Because it gives the actual violent anti-Semites a free pass to target whomever they want and to harm people with mere impunity. You have websites like the Daily Codes trying to blame this on Kanye West of all people. There's absolutely no evidence that this trans character was influenced by or even listens to Kanye West. But this is how desperate the white media is to prop up the dead horse of black anti-Semitism. Kanye West hasn't harmed anyone in the Jewish community or anywhere else, and he's not going to. And there's no black people harming the Jewish community in his name either. Goldie Taylor told us all that the real threat was young black men, who apparently are mindless robots who will do anything Kanye says, no matter how ridiculous, right? Only that's not true. There are anti-Semitic attacks taking place, but it's not Kanye nor young black men who are carrying them out. So will Goldie Taylor issue an apology? Of course not, because this isn't about being right. It's about keeping up the steady drumbeat of anti-black propaganda. So as we see, the phony narrative that Kanye West is encouraging anti-Semitism is dead on arrival. But since they can't show where Kanye or young black men are harming anyone, they instead look for any act of anti-Semitic violence committed by anyone else. And then they mention Kanye West's name, even though he had absolutely nothing to do with it. And that's deliberate. They're using Kanye West as a proxy for the black community as a whole. This is a typical propaganda tactic of the white media. It's called creating a false association. You do it by taking two completely unrelated things and then mention them together in the same sentence over and over and over again. Like George Bush did with 9-11 and Saddam Hussein. Saddam, 9-11, Iraq, Al-Qaeda, 9-11, Saddam, 9-11, Iraq. You do that enough times and eventually a lot of people are going to start to think that those two unrelated things have something to do with one another, even though the person making the false association knows that they don't. That's what's going on here. There's been this persistent lie put out by the likes of Ari Emanuel, Juju Chang, and the rest of the white media that the black community is the core of anti-Semitism and any other hate crime in the United States. On the one hand, you have the white media distracting everyone with lies saying to look at black people. And on the other hand, the police and other law enforcement get the clear message that so long as the person being accused of a hate crime isn't black, then the white media is not gonna cover it so it doesn't matter. This white media narrative has played itself out so many times, so aggressively, that of course when they see a surly young man with a pistol on a college campus, Rather than lock him up and hold him until trial, instead, they just let him out on bail. And be it Dylan Roof or Jamie Tran, the FBI will consistently miss all the clues and won't send out any alerts to arrest anyone. But Ari Emanuel bears more than a little blame for things like this. His anti-black propaganda has real consequences and puts people in danger. 
not just black people who become targets for white media smear campaigns and for false accusations, but also the Jewish community who is left totally vulnerable to actual anti-Semitic violence. Ari Emanuel has been totally quiet about this incident. He claims to care so much about the safety of the Jewish community, but in the face of actual violence, not the rantings of a bipolar rapper, Ari Emanuel is still silent. All he can think about is himself and protecting his image, especially from any uncomfortable questions about how he smeared the black community or about why he hasn't done anything about his friend Dana White after he was caught on video beating his wife in public. Yeah, there was a reason why this one faded from the headlines real quick. The black mayor of L.A. has voiced and shown more concern and solidarity with the Jewish community in the wake of this incident than Ari Emanuel has. Yet, whenever he slithers out of whatever hole he's hiding in, you can bet that he'll go back to being the main one continuing to push the lie that black people just aren't doing enough to combat anti-Semitism. Which is doubly insulting when you consider that Ari Emanuel isn't doing anything at all. Good day, and be one. The massacre of 1874, or coup of 1874, took place on election day, November 3rd, 1874, near Uvala, Alabama, in Barber County. Freedmen comments comprised a majority of the population and had been electing Republican candidates to office. Members of an Alabama chapter of the White League, a paramilitary group supporting the Democratic Party's drive to regain political power in the county and state, used firearms to ambush black Republicans at the polls. In Ufala, members of the White League killed an estimated 15 to 40 black voters and wounded 70 while driving away more than a thousand unarmed black people at the polls and attacking the polling place in Spring Hill the league effectively hijacked the elections. He turned all Republicans out of office and Democratic candidates took a majority of offices up for election. The White League had formed in 1874 as an insurgent white Democratic paramilitary group in Grant Parish in nearby parishes on the Red River of South in Louisiana. The league was founded by members of the white militia who had committed the Colfax massacre in Louisiana in 1873 killing numerous black people in order to turn out Republicans from parish offices as part of the disputed 1872 gubernatorial election. Historians such as George Ray considered groups such as the White League and Red Shirts as a military arm of the Democratic Party. Their members worked openly to disrupt Republican meetings and attack the intimidated voters to suppress black voting. They courted press attention rather than operating secretly as had the Ku Klux Klan. Chapters spread to Alabama and other states in the Deep South. A similar paramilitary group was the Red Shirts, which originated in Mississippi and became active in the Carolinas. Both paramilitary groups contributed to the Democrats, regaining control of the state legislatures in the late 1870s. The Red Shirts were still active in the 1890s and were implicated in the Wilmington insurrection of 1898 in North Carolina. On election day, November 3rd, 1874, an Alabama chapter of the White League repeated actions taken earlier that year in Vicksburg, Mississippi. They invaded Ufala and with firearms ambushed black voters as they marched down Broad Street, 
killing an estimated 15 to 40 black Republicans, injuring at least 70 more, and driving off more than a thousand unarmed Republicans from the polls. The group moved to Spring Hill, where members stormed the polling place, destroying the ballot box, and killing the 16-year-old son of a white Republican judge in their shooting. The white league refused to count any Republican votes cast, but Republican voters reflected the black majority in the county, as well as white supporters. They outnumbered Democratic voters by a margin greater than two to one. The league declared the Democratic candidates victorious, forced Republican politicians out of office, and seized every county office in Barber County in a kind of a coup d'etat. Such actions were repeated in other parts of the South in the 1870s as Democrats sought to regain political dominance in states with black majorities and numerous Republican officials. In Barber County, the Democrats auctioned off as slaves for a maximum cost of $2 per month, or otherwise all Republicans witnesses to the events. They were intimidated from testifying to the coup if the case went to federal court. Due to the actual and threatened violence by the white league, black voters began to stay away from the polls in Barber County. They no longer voted in sufficient number to retain a majority of Republican office holders. White conservative Democrats continued to intimidate black voters through the late 19th century, especially after the populist Republican Alliance elected some fusion candidates in the Deep South, as well as local Republican officials in many states. In 1875, Mississippi Democrats also used widespread intimidation to control local elections, which became known as the Mississippi Plan. Such violence was adopted by chapters in other cities and counties. Democrats regained control of Alabama and other state legislatures. Reconstruction ended with the withdrawal of federal troops as part of a compromise to elect Rutherford B. Hayes. Historian Dan T. Carter concludes that the triumph of white supremacy came at great cost, not only to the defeated Republican Party, but to the processes of government. Violence already endemic in Southern society became institutionalized and community leaders transformed the willful corruption and manipulation of elections into a patriotic virtue. In 1901, the Democratic-dominated state legislature in Alabama, like Southern states, followed Mississippi's lead to end such election-related violence by passing a new constitution that effectively disenfranchised most Black people by such measures as poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, and white primaries. Poll taxes and literally literacy tests also disenfranchised tens of thousands of poor whites in Alabama. Although the Democratic legislature had promised whites would not be affected by the new measures, politicians wanted to preclude poor whites aligned with black people in populist Republican coalitions. With disenfranchisement achieved, the legislature passed laws imposing racial segregation and other elements of Jim Crow a system that lasted well into the 1960s. At that time, the gains of the civil rights movement led to congressional passage of legislation in the mid-1960s that prohibited segregation and began to enforce the constitutional rights for minorities to suffrage and equal protection under the law. In 1979, the state erected a historical marker located at the intersection of U.S. Highway 82 and Barber County Road 97 near Comer, Alabama. The marker effectively blurred events and their significance in which the 1874 election supervisor Elias Keels was assaulted and his son Willie was murdered while they were counting votes. The marker makes no connection to the murderous ambush on the same day in Eufaula a few miles away. 
At Old Spring Hill, the terrorist mob intent on disrupting the counting of dollars was led by rich landowners Wallace Comer and his brother Braxton Bragg Comer. In the subsequent 1876 presidential election, only 10 black Republicans went to the polls in Ufala. And three, de three decades later, Braxton Bragg Comer would benefit from the exclusion of black voters in Jim Crow, Alabama, being elected governor of the state. The historical marker reads, near here is Old Spring Hill, the site of one of the polling places for the November 3rd, 1874 local, state, and national elections. Elias M. Keels, Scalawag, and judge of the city court of Eufaula, was United States supervisor at the Spring Hill ballot box. William, his 16-year-old son, was with him. After the polls closed, a mob broke into the building, extinguished the lights, destroyed the poll box, and began shooting. During the riot, Willie Kills was mortally wounded. The resulting congressional investigation received national attention. This bloody episode marked the end of the Republican domination in Barbara County, erected by the historic Chattahoochee Commission, 1979. Well, that is going to conclude this week's Black Massacre episode, Black Massacre series episode, this is episode 10 on the election massacre or the election riot of 1874. If you have not done so already, you can go ahead and check the Black Massacre series playlist and you can get caught up on episodes one through nine or just get a refresher on episodes one through that nine. That was short. We will be back here next week, well, his next Wednesday, when we go oh. to episode 11 the Black Massacre series. Be safe if you want. So, remember when we talked about the definition of courting, right? And normally when somebody says something that is just ridiculous, that's just lame or corny, it just it was just not funny. This is what that is. This is a comedian saying something that's not even funny. It was like, yeah, I sat up there and watched Emancipation so I could see uh, Will Smith get whipped. Wow, that's that's the best you got. I just want people to realize I can't list you the last stand-up that Chris Rock has like done. Um, I might be able to think of some appearances he made, maybe some movies, you know, stuff like that. But the only thing that has really heightened his career, really giving him that fire back was the whole Oscar slap. And this is the only thing that he seems to be able to actually talk about. And it's like, wow, so this happened about clear cut like a year and some change and we're still talking about this. And then lo and behold, you're like, hey, I'm about to do a brand new Netflix special March 4th, and I'm going to give a lot of the thoughts, a lot of the things that I wanted to say, I'm going to say up there. I'm pretty sure the whole stand up should not be about to slap it. They just can't because if it is, that means that you have a huge limitation when it comes to me. Huge limitation. You're not going to tell me that a whole hour or whatever is going to be about I'm pretty sure it's going to be a multitude of jokes about, hey, this is where my line was, this is what I would have done if it was replayed, 
Um, this is what I wish I could do. Uh, like, realistically, at the end of the day, I really feel as though he wouldn't even have a Netflix special if it wasn't for a slap. He wouldn't have showed up on the stage with Dave Chappelle if it wasn't for a slap. And a lot of other things that took place, him selling out, I think it was in Boston or whatever it was, that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the slap. Like I said, I can't wish to the last time that Chris Rock has just gone somewhere. And it just sold out time after time, back to back to back to back to back. Rave reviews, everybody's talking about it. It's all over. I, I can't list you any of those. And especially in recent times, I can't list you any of those. This is just... Like I said, this is just ridiculous. This is just a thousand percent ridiculous. But, you know, people got to do something in order to get back in the spotlight, in order for people to register their name and, you know, all of these other types of things. People got to do something, I guess. I guess. You have some black people that say, uh, say that they say, like, oh, you know, y'all say that, you know, you shouldn't be talking about it or all this other. I'm like, God, you, you had a variety of time to sit up there, especially when it was hot, when you can profit and make the most money off of it, you had a whole bunch of time to sit up there and talk about it. Realistically, like I said, the main time when when stuff like that happens, speak when it's hot. So you can get that 15 minutes in. You can like do that hand over fist. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait a year plus later. So then when Will Smith has a movie, now you want to sit up there and start talking about it, along with talking about the slap. It's crazy. Like I said, I'm just saying, like, I you know, I ain't trying to hear nothing about this um, in 2024. I'm not, I'm not trying to hear nothing about this. I'm really not. Because like I said, I did a multitude of videos. Talking about this. Referencing this topic multitude of different ways. And there was a multitude of people that were just like, hey, I signed with Chris Rock. Like I said, that's cool. I signed with Chris Rock. Make sure you signed with him on this. Because this was this was some 81. This this was not common. Like, I didn't find that funny. Pandering to that cracker. The fact that the character that Will Smith is playing is based off of an actual black man that did all of these things. His image is directly online for people to see. So I, I'm a little bit confused on, you know, how it is that, like I said, I don't know. Like I said, uh, a lot of times to me, Chris Rock is, is hit or miss, and he pretty much pulls like a Kevin Hart to an extent where he makes his comedy to be curtailed for uh, the Caucasian audience. It's not really for the black audience, right? And we've already seen how this basically works when comedians, in a sense, have comedy. Some some people are, are very good at just doing stuff in general, right? And it just works. Dave Chappelle is one of those. He can do it for either or or all. And it's going to sit up there work, and people will, majority will, find it funny. Uh, Chris Rock, on the other hand, it ain't really, you know, it's not really like that. It's, you know, it's, it's like you got to kind of pick a lane, you know. And like I said, Chris Rock has technically been on my list uh, 
for a minute due to the fact that he was with a whole bunch of other Caucasian comedians and he was letting them, you know, say the word. And I'm like, this is this is what we're doing. This is this is what we're doing. You're the token black guy out of this whole thing amongst all of these other comedians. And this is what you're co-signing and allowing you to do. So like I said, I don't got no problem with the slap, and I still don't. Because if you got a black man out here that has lived long enough to see some of the things out here, and then he gets famous, and then he decides to be in a room full of uh, comedians that don't look anything like him, and he co-signs them basically using that word, yo, that's clownery. That's straight clownery and buffoonery. A1 right there. So again, shout out to you know the people that uh, body blocked and, and, and that agree with uh, you know Chris Rock and, and all this other type of stuff. Like I said, I hope you agree with the rest of the stuff that he's been sitting up there doing the same. That's all I'm saying. Keep the same energy. The victim. You're gonna watch. The bully, in a sense, state that now they are the ones that are really being bullied. It's a bully narrative. Look, I just think, like, if you were upset because you said I called them corny and those are the things that you're rebuttaling with, it's like uh, the crime and the punishment. That If, if that's what you said, I said, it doesn't did. even match up. Yeah. Like, how is that okay? The narrative is definitely still pushed. I, I feel like I admitted exactly what I said. And then even those words got turned around. When I told this story, it wasn't even in the sense too. of me breaking down the entire school experience. Lie. FYI, we went to school together for one year. So the narrative that I bullied him all throughout high school, this was seventh grade, we were like 12 years old and everybody made fun of each other. And then like, I would get joked on because of my complexion. And you know, I went to a predominantly we, black school. So it's like white girl, you know, yeah, oh, so your boy, you, right. now you're mocking me because of my boy. We made fun of each other. That was school, you know, that oh, was one year. Like, oh, bitch, that was, was all you did. That just sounded so bitch. outrageous to me. Like me bullying but Michael B. Jordan his whole life. Bitch. Wouldn't we have heard about this she before this? Yeah, I do feel like he took everything out of it. It gave the most thing where it's like, you know, he's he heard that people probably call him this before because this is not something we haven't heard, right? I just never said it. I've defended him numerous what? times just because of the fact that I did have a rapport with him. And I never, never, you didn't have no rapport. I never said, you know, we were cool. And that we was that. Cool. So when I was even asked to do the carpet, I did it because I'm like, oh, this is a big moment for him. And I didn't expect it to go like that. And some people did try to spin the sexiest man comment. And that was weird to me because if you do your your homework, he was named the sexiest man in the world magazine. People magazine does it. And then Jonathan Majors recently did an, an article, an interview, where he spoke on, they asked him about him possibly being the sexiest man. So when I asked that, that was an all-in-fun question, literally trying to turn a bad situation into something good. They're both nice-looking guys, you no, know, not, that wasn't my goal to go to uh pre pre premiere and walk away because like michael b was on general hospital and stuff like that i went to like six different high schools you know i was a i was an interesting one back then <laughs> he's doing his thing out here i don't have no ill feelings but uh it's crazy to me when people are like well even when they listen to the audio it's like well you didn't defend him 
when you call when she calls him corny and i'm like and he's not defending me right now when everybody's calling me a bully because he knows i'm not well uh hi guys it looks like we're here again and um we have to touch on this topic yet again i thought this was this was pretty much done. <laughs> I, like I said, I didn't think I'd have to do four or five whatever videos um, directly on this same topic, but it, it just seems like it, it just keeps going. Um, she said a lot of stuff there yet again, and I want to just go back to the last part, right? She wanted to state at the very end that, hey, um, it's crazy to me when people are like, well, even when they listen to the audio, it's like, well, you didn't defend him when you called, uh, when the, the lady called him corny, right? And she was like, well, he's not defending me right now when everybody else is. That that's not that's not what everybody's. That, that, no, 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 we're not getting this. We're, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. The original statement that she made. Matter of fact, let me just. Oh my God! Let's just let's just let's just run the footage. No, I really think he's on the side. I think that Michael B. Jordan is just like a nice, corny guy. And I don't mean that as a slight, right? I mean, we all know that the nice, corny guys treat you the best. You know what's so crazy? I went to school with Michael B. Jordan at a point in life, and we went to child science together in Newark. And to be honest with you, we teased him all the damn time because his yeah. name was Michael Jordan. Like, let like let's start there and he was no michael jordan and then he also oh so this was the bitch and back then oh you ain't heard like, that in, in the hood we lived in newark yeah like that that's the hood you know what i mean so it, we would make fun of him like what you gotta do with your little stupid headshots so again okay. as i've stated before she didn't exactly say it but then again she didn't try to spin the narrative or she then went on in order to corroborate that narrative that he is corny by then adding what it is that she experienced while being around Michael B. Jordan during the time of school. You heard her basically state that, oh, you know, he made fun of him all the time about his name because he's no Michael Jordan. And then he came through with his headshots, you know, thinking that he's somebody, da da da, all this other type of stuff, right? So she went on the narrative that was already built that he was corny and then added extra details in order to prove the fact that yeah. the original person stating that he is corny in order to prove the fact that she is right to solidify that point so in an effect you did call him corny but better yet better yet just in case a little bit of people are a little bit confused let's play the next one Okay, so you also are going to do a new film with Will Smith very soon coming up. It's a rumor out there. Not sure. We're still working on the script. You know, that's something I plan on doing in the future. Not sure when. You know, these movies. I'm trying to do this project. Right, right, right. right. This one, I'll figure out what's going on. How is it filming in Atlanta? It's amazing. I've done four or five films down here. Shot a couple television shows. So Atlanta's the second home to me. I love coming down here. Favorite restaurant here? Oh, man. Whatever hotel I'm in, their restaurant. Well, you're not corny anymore. <laughs> so wow. Just here again, I class, didn't hear that right? The same woman that stated for about that didn't call him what, the it third time now that she said that she did not call Michael B. Jordan corny. What did she say at the end? Because remember, she was the same one that told Michael B. Jordan when he directly came. He was like, hey, you know, you said we know each other, but remember, you know, you called me like corny, all this other type of stuff. Like, yeah, yeah I heard I heard what you said. I was like, yeah, you know. He, he was playing light directly with it, but he was putting her on notice that 
he paid attention. He heard specifically what it is that she said. She refuted it, saying that her thing was misinterpreted, misrepresented. But at the end of the day, at the end of the interview, which she didn't have to say, she still she called him corny. Like, well, you're not corny anymore, which then means if you're going to say, well, you're not corny anymore, that means that you thought or have stated previously that, that he the was corny. Was corny. Right. And then this is the same woman that wants to come on to another platform trying to play the victim. Oh, my Lord, I'm pretty sure that people have said a variety of things directly about you due to the fact that you're in the public eye, you're on reality TV and all these other types. I'm pretty sure that people have said way worse things than the things that you listed um, at the first part of the interview. I also want to note, I to technically edit that stuff out because... Hey, you know, YouTube likes the hard stuff. But um, like I said, it's, it's completely crazy how the narrative ends up getting switched and how the person that was making fun of slash bullying someone was the one that now is saying that they're the victim at the end of the day. That's crazy. And like I said, only women can can do things like this. I, guys can't do this. Because <laughs> it's not going to be believable. It's just not going to be believable at all. And this is what she decided to do. And it's like, that's crazy. That's a thousand percent crazy. I don't understand why it is that people just can't take it up. Just take the L, just walk with the L probably. It's like, all right, he called me. He called me out. It is what it is. Right? You can just easily do that. People would have more than likely just admired that. Or she would have been like, you know what? I did say some things that might have not been exactly what I stated. But to you and in front of everybody, I do apologize for my comments directly on you. Um, you know, you know, they may have offended you or different things of that nature. I do, um, you know, apologize. And, you know, I really didn't mean anything, you know, by it. I should have, you know, spoke, you know, wiser. I'm pretty sure if that would have been stated, Michael B. Jordan would have looked at everything differently. Right? The whole interaction directly in that interview would have been different. All of the videos and, and, and all of the things that are being said on social media at this moment in time would be vastly different if she would have decided to take accountability for the things that she did. And again, you're going to have some people out there that are going to state that, oh, well, this was old. Who who was staying on old things? It's like, yo, all this. It's like, yo, if, you, if, if all you are is a nice person in life and you've treated people respectfully with, with dignity and, and all of that type of stuff, things like that will stick with you. Things are going to directly stick with you because you're still trying to figure out how is it possible that if you did the things that people told you, like, hey, if you people treat people nice, then they're going to treat you nice. If you sit up there and do these things, you find out at the end of the day, you're going to get treated wrong. The world does not respect nice. That That's the main point. That's the probably one of the main reasons I'm even still talking about this topic right now. The world realistically, in a sense, doesn't, you know, respect nice. It, it, that just is what it is. Right, because what do they always say at the uh, nice guys finish last, right? That's what they always say. Shout out to Rap House TV for this caption stated, Michael B. Jordan sacrificed partying in his younger years to build a comfortable and successful future. He recently got honored with a star in the Hollywood Hall of Fame. So I just want to give a shout out to all the young men who are corny, who are lame, who are squares, who ain't getting no attention from no girls and all of that. This 
in a sense, not saying that this is exactly what's going to happen to you, but you're going to end up having your come up. You're not going to have it in your teens. You're not going to, in a sense, have it in your 20s. But if you stay focused, you stay on your purpose, you stay on what it is that you're supposed to be building, what it is that you're supposed to be doing, you keep that drive up, you're just looking forward, you ain't paying attention to no distractions, you will be successful. That's what this story is. At the end of the day, this is what success looks like. He was teased. People made fun of him. I'm pretty sure that he tried to get the attention of a lot of different girls during that time, every now and again, and it didn't really work out. Because notice how none of those girls that he grew up with, notice how they're not on his arm. Notice how he didn't bring them with him. That's because they opted not to be with him. And I'm just saying girls in general, they opted not to be with him because they deemed him a certain type of guy. They saw him in a certain type of light. And even with all of the things that he has done, you still got women out here that still see him in a certain type of light. They will still overlook him. Everything that he's built for himself, he literally struggled, strive, stay focused so that he can build this wealth, not only for himself, but for his family. You will have women that will overlook all of that hard work, all of that dedication in order to go towards another guy. And again, for a lot of those, uh, for a lot of the dudes out there, if you ever get overlooked, yo, it's not the end of the world. It's like, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it hurts, but it is what it is. It's a teaching moment and it's a lesson. All it's going to do at the end of the day is that it's going to give you a hardened exterior. It's going to give you that type of armor that you need. Because you need to go through these points of women rejecting, 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 rejecting you so that it's nothing to you. So that you can clearly, if you want to, if you saw a woman that you're interested in, you can go up to an ask and she say, no, all right, move on to the next one. That's it. You're not going to be emotional about it. You ain't going to be trying to argue. You're not going to try to get the last word or nothing like that. It's, it's whatever it is. And then she's going to be the one at the end of the day that's going to see later on that she lost out on a great dude. She lost out on an opportunity to be with somebody that could more than likely give something to her that a lot of other men would not be able to deliver or give to her or, or let alone build. So, you know, that's all I'm saying at the end of the day for a lot of those guys, for a lot of those young men, keep your head up. A lot of these women out here ain't worth it. They, they are not about that life of, you know, actually trying to be with somebody while they are focused on their purpose. They're not actually about the, the whole main thing of like, hey, you know, let me let me be a little bit of that support and yada, 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 all this other type of stuff. Because if they weren't, Michael B. Jordan would have been had a fiance. He would have been had a wife. He would have been had that long lasting girlfriend from high school or whatever it was. But like I said, this is the story for most guys. A lot of women, a lot of girls will turn you down. And it just is what it is.